You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Hello, my friends. Welcome into another episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast. Thrilled and excited to be back with you today. Today, I think we're going to be finishing out our series on creation and the age of the earth, which I'm really excited about. It's been, um, I'll tell you, it's been fun. It's been cool to sort of revisit in a deep way um, the the question of uh, young age creation versus old age creation versus no age creation. Um, I feel like it's sort of been a, a fresh and somewhat you know exciting look uh, for me uh, to 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 dig back into this in a heavy way. So it's been good, and I hope that you have enjoyed it as well. Well, without further ado, I just want to kind of dive in give a quick summary of where we are at to this point, talk a little bit about model building versus evolution bashing, and then dive into some of the science. And then we will be through with this series. I appreciate you joining along. I've gotten some great comments from listeners. So thank you so much for for, for being around. So recall, we're talking about what's with the age of the earth. And, And so, you know, the idea is that there are these three views of creation throughout the Christian history of the church, right? There's young age, old age, and no age. There has been these three different views and different people have their opinions. We talked about why this debate mattered to people back then, so to speak, and also why it still matters to people today. Turns out there are, even as the science uh, you know, advances, there are some specific theological, biblical, and even scientific issues that one needs to wrestle with if they are going to accurately approach this issue. And as Christians, we understand that we live in the true story of the world, right? The Bible matches reality. The Bible is reality. And so to the extent that someone says that reality does not match with what we see in the biblical record, then we need to synthesize that data. We need to understand that And so the young age, no age, and old age uh, approaches are different approaches to understanding how those data relate. And of course, I am a young age creationist. There's no secret there. And what we've talked about is using this acronym ADAM, okay, the accuracy of the biblical account, death before the fall, a truly risen savior, and many scientific evidences. This is sort of my framework for uh, concisely putting this data together and showing why I think a young age creationist framework is the best and most consistent way of approaching everything. So in the past few weeks, we've talked through those points. And finally, we are arriving at many scientific evidences. Now, we did talk about that. We began talking about that last week. The discussion went a couple of different directions, I think in a very helpful way, though. Um, we talked about a lot more of the philosophy of science and creation. And we didn't dig too deep into that, but 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 we did cover a lot of ground. And so this week, I want to sort of button up that conversation about creation and in the philosophy of science, and then sort of get into my favorite slash what I think are some of the most compelling scientific arguments for a young age for creation. So let me start off by saying, I am for a balanced approach to the data. Okay, now, when I started this podcast, this was back in 2017 now. It is so hard to believe that. I started this podcast back in 2017, went through periods of hiatus and, um, 
you know, I it, it it's been a long journey and it's been it's been fun. I started it the summer I started it. Let's say I started it and uh, I believe it was a September or and maybe it was in August or September and um I had just come off the heels of a awesome trip to the Creation Museum that previous summer and I got so excited about creation. I had already been blogging since April of that year. Um you know, related to Christian apologetics and theology. And I, I always had a passion for creation, or at least since I had gotten into apologetics and theology from um, a couple of years before that, I, uh, I, I really was developing a passion for creation. But I'll tell you, something really was special about that trip to the Creation Museum, particularly for me. I just, it made it even more exciting, even more real. And that's when I decided to start a podcast called The Creation Academy to talk about those things. And maybe some of you are new to this podcast and you don't know the story. You know, I'll keep it brief here. But, you know, the idea is I wanted to talk about creation. I wanted a podcast dedicated solely to the science of creation. And it that's how it started out. And uh, my one of my big reasons, in fact, I'm pretty sure we talked about this literally on episode two of the podcast, is this idea of the new creationism. I I was learning simultaneously, you know, at that sort of the meta level uh, about the creation debate. So I, I was right. So I was learning the the data, the details. You know, why be a creationist over you know, a non-creationist or why take a young age view over not a young age view. But at the same time, I was learning some some things about the debate inside of young age creationism itself, which you may not know this, but there's a debate um, that rages inside of creationist circles. And while everybody is friends, you know, I mean, most of these people get along. The reality is, is that there are some pretty stark opinions in terms of approach to some of this data. And there is a sense in which one could honestly take sides in this debate, okay? And um, to the extent that that is what is going on, all right, I take the what I call the balanced approach or the new creationist approach, okay? Uh, Paul Garner wrote a book called The New Creationism. I think he wrote it in 2009. It needs an update. He knows that. Uh, I talked to him personally, and uh, great, fantastic guy. I mean, he's. I think he is hoping at some point to to give an update to that book. Um, but yeah, the new creationism is is probably one of the most up to date holistic publications that's going to give the landscape of creation research where it is now. Science is constantly changing, and you know this was twelve years ago now, so or thirteen, twelve or thirteen years ago now. And so um, it's time for an update, yes. But still that approach, though, uses what might be called model building as opposed to what we might call evolution bashing, okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I disagree with evolution. So there's an extent to which I'm totally cool with some evolution bashing. My, the point is, is that if you tear something down, but you don't provide a reasonable alternative, then what are you really doing? Okay, you're not giving satisfactory answers yourself. You know, you're just looking at another project or enterprise and saying, well, they're they're not quite adequate. And then somebody comes to you and says, well, what answers do you have? And if the answer is, uh, well, we're working on it. Uh, we don't really have any answers. 
Well, that's not exactly productive. So I um, I really identify with those who are doing that work, who are who are doing research to build a a positive model for creation beyond just saying, well, evolution is definitely wrong because, okay? And so, again, I'm friends with everybody across the spectrum of creationism, but this is an important point that I think needs to be understood. There are, I mean, depending on which side of this you're going to plant your flag, you know, you will have an opinion about the quality of work. You will have an opinion about, um, you know, just how strong the evidence is. You will have an opinion about the nature of evidence to some degree. Uh, depending on where you land on this. And so where I land is in this model building approach, I'm far more interested in what creationist scientists are doing than I am why evolution is not true, either biblically or scientifically. So that's sort of my caveat and, and to kind of put a cap on the uh, on the philosophy of science discussion. And hopefully that will be a good framework and a good model as we move into our understanding of these things. And by the way, none of these scientific evidences that I'm going to talk about would be possible were it not for creationists who are doing this work. It's absolutely fantastic. And I am proud to have even a very small part in promoting it. Okay, let's dive in. So my, my first kind of piece of evidence here that I want to talk about is the, the flood model, the creationist flood model, called catastrophic plate tectonics, okay? Catastrophic plate tectonics. Now, there are multiple different creationist flood models. This is the one that I happen to be the most convinced of, and I would probably say the majority of creationists are convinced of. I don't know that you could say consensus, but I would say the vast majority of your creationists, especially your, your ministries that are more well-known and promoting this stuff, are going to take the catastrophic plate tectonics view because the evidence for it really is pretty strong. Now, I'm not a scientist. I've made that qualification literally since day one of this podcast. So as interested as I am in it, I don't have time to to learn a lot of the technicalities of the actual science end of it, right? I'm, I'm really just popularizing. So if you're interested in what I say here, just know that I'm speaking at a very shallow level of 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 language here of, of of thought here and that if you want to dive deeper for yourself into understanding the mechanics you are certainly welcome to do that there are some books you can grab faith reason and earth history by leonard brand and art chadwick is a great book uh, if you can find it faith form and time by dr kurt wise is a fantastic book um and there are others uh that talk about this of course the new creationism is a great one that will talk about this model as well and I just highly uh, would encourage you to check it out. So catastrophic plate tectonics is a flood model that really helps make a ton of sense of the geological data that we have when you compare it against the biblical description of the event and most certainly when you ditch the assumption of uniformitarianism. And again, if I were just to give the super you know, layman's look at this, okay, the idea is that Plate tectonics, the uniformitarian, long ages version of plate tectonics, is onto something, okay? 
it is it is a part of the picture. It is a part of the story, but it is not the whole story. And modeling has been done by a team. It was during the 90s when much of this work was done, late 80s and then early uh, 90s. And of course, much work continues on it today. But uh, Dr. Wise, Dr. Baumgartner, Dr. Stephen Austin, and um, um, others were involved in this project and, and, and really worked on this modeling. Okay. And the idea is that if you speed up the process of plate tectonics and you account for the catastrophic and violent nature of what would have happened during the flood. See, a lot of people don't really think about that. They just think, oh, you know, you know the, the, the world flooded with water. Well, no, like there was so much going on, so much chaos so much destruction. There was tons of volcanic activity. I mean, there was, it, it was just insane what would have went on during that time. And what's just crazy is how many lines of evidence really converge when you put this together. In fact, catastrophic plate tectonics is capable not only of explaining everything that um, traditional uh, or conventional plate tectonics can explain, but even more than that. It explains some of the magnetic field reversals that we find and other things as well. Again, I'm not going too deep into the science itself. You can look into that. But, but catastrophic plate tectonics, again, is a model that describes what it would have been like and, and what evidence we would expect to see if the uh, if it is true that the flood really did happen. A global flood happened and took over the Earth. Now, we have a another podcast episode on the flood. The, uh, it's all about the flood. I did it with Mark Lambert. And... Um, it's, uh, it's, I forget what episode it is, but you can go back here and just search for flood in your podcast app within this podcast and you should be able to find it. I think I titled it a flood of evidence. Okay. So we went through a lot of this specific stuff in that podcast and talked about the nature of evidence and everything as well. So I would encourage you to check that out. The idea is that this also provides a coherent explanation for understanding why the pre-flood world was so different from the world we know today. For example, a lot of questions that we get, especially my young, uh, my, um, he's four years old now. He's my second oldest son is really fascinated with dinosaurs right now, loves dinosaurs. And he's all the time asking questions, um, about them. And unfortunately, you know, he likes a lot of these shows and stuff, but they promote a, uh, a conventional time frame instead of what I believe to be the, uh, correct time frame and the biblical time frame. So he's always asking questions about dinosaurs and things. And it's interesting. You can actually learn a lot about the pre-flood world by studying what would have happened during the flood. You know, people ask about, well, dinosaurs, were they buried? Like, why weren't they buried with humans? Why don't we ever find these together? Well, it turns out if you analyze the data that is available about what dinosaurs ate, what kind of conditions they would have needed to live, what other kinds of factors um, went into creating the, or the, uh, the pre-flood world before it was destroyed, you find that it's likely that we don't see these together because they lived in entirely different ecosystems, okay? So it's like, oh, there's an explanation for that. And uh, so it's just fascinating to me. And then finally, uh, my final point with this, I wanted to give two or three points with each of these to, that kind of like explain why, why they're compelling to me. And so this one for me is that the biblical flood is a more realistic account of an event that multiple cultures seemed to have preserved legends of okay there are between three to five hundred different flood legends in different cultures around the world many of which bear striking similarity to the noahic flood okay and it's just 
fascinating to me um, and logical to think about the fact that, that these cultures derived this retelling of this event from the real one that actually happened. Okay. And, and so when you said, well, see, that's kind of arbitrary, right? Like, why is the biblical flood the real one? Because, you know, some people try to say, well, maybe there was another flood that was actually the real one. Or, or, or maybe this is just a legend that was passed down over time through all these cultures and it never actually happened or it happened way differently. Well, if you look at all of these different ones, the, the Creation Museum actually has a really, really cool um, display on this. If you look at the flood account as told by so many, especially of the most popular different flood legends around the world, they're not realistic. They couldn't have happened. Okay. Um, and, and they're just fantastical. They have fantastic details that the biblical account does not have. And there have even been studies. There was a huge um, feasibility study that was uh, done in the late 90s talking about the, uh, the ark and the feasibility of the biblical description of the ark being able to actually float and the story being true. And sure enough, the feasibility study definitely showed that, yeah, this could be a realistic account of something that actually happened. It would have been no problem. The size of the ark wouldn't have been a problem, etc. All of these questions are answered. So not that we don't have any questions. You know, this is not a magic bullet. We have questions about catastrophic plate tectonics 100%. For example, one issue that we know is uh, there is a what's called the flood heat problem. Okay, so there's an issue that catastrophic plate tectonics, as it is currently formulated, would have generated so much heat that it basically would have burned up, you know, the, you know, it, it incinerated the oceans. Okay, and it's like, oh, well, that is obviously a problem for our model. And so, right, so we're working on it and, and people are working on it to try to figure that out. So we acknowledge the issues and we say, yeah, okay, we have issues. Other people have issues too, though. We're all working through data. And let's just have our seat at the table as we work through the data for our models as well. Side note here, this is precisely why, going back to last week's episode, we don't hitch our wagon to models. It certainly could be true. And another five years or more or less, catastrophic plate tectonics could be overturned. Would it make the flood not true? No. No, it wouldn't. Okay? Again, we're placing our stake, we're planting our flag in the biblical data, and we're holding loosely to scientific models, tentatively to scientific models, while appreciating their value because they really can't help us see how the biblical account has plausibility in the real world. And so that's really exciting and I love uh, this kind of work. Okay, so that's the flood. Um, the second thing is biology and uh, barometrological investigation, okay? Biology and barometrological investigation. So the, the word Barominology, okay, baromen, is derived from the biblical description of created kinds, okay? Now, throughout the years, there's actually been a lot of discussion on this concept by uh, one of the first to really bring it out was Frank Lewis Marsh. And um, he, his concept of the created kind is a little bit different than today, what we understand to be the creative kind, but it's still just derived from this biblical language of bara min, okay? Bara means created in Hebrew and min means kind, okay? So this is barominology, and this is essentially a method of biological systematics, okay? It's, it's a classification system. Now, the modern evolutionary classification system that is used is called cladistics, okay? So you have cladistics on the evolutionary side, 
and you have baromenology on the creationist side. And so these two are right now, so to speak, the head-to-head you know, competitors as to who can explain more data in a more plausible way. And I'm not going to try to pretend like somebody's keeping score on that. You know, I, I have I have no idea. The point really isn't to compare them head to head, okay? Even though I just framed it that way. The point is more so to, as a creationist, have a framework that is in line with the expectations that we would want to see if the biblical account is true. Let me explain. So, cladistics is blind to discontinuity. Okay, the, the classification system of, of cladistics is blind to discontinuity between um, organismal populations growing over time like evolutionists want to have. Okay, so it is, it is a system that is fundamentally built on the concept of continuity, of finding similarities between organisms. So when baromenology was first developed by Dr. Kurt Weiss in the early 90s, his what he set out to do was create a system that could account for differences. Because if the biblical account is true, then there are going to be meaningful differences between organisms. Again, one of the easiest ways to see this is just that there are different biblical kinds. You can look at the Bible says, oh, this is the, you know, this is that kind. This is that kind. This is that kind. Okay. And they reproduce according to their kinds. So there will be differences, right? We have discontinuity in the creation days, for example, as well. Your birds were created on one day, you know, land animals created on another day. Okay. So, so this is like a very important consideration um, that goes into our classification system. And so if your classification system can't detect the thing that you need in order to show that it is plausible, then it's broken, right? You can't, you can't use cladistics against creationists. Do you understand that? Okay. If you use cladistics against creationists, then you are guilty of stacking the deck because a creationist can't win in a cladistics system. But a system that will factor in continuity and discontinuity, number one, seems to be more fair to the data. Number two, it does factor in a biblical description of history. Again, not in a stack the deck way, just in a way that, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense that we would want to look at how these organisms or how these organisms are similar and also how they are different. So this actually does matter. And this is a system that gives us that. Baromenology has thus far proven um, to be fruitful across a wide array of humans and animals. And it sort of proves that when you take biblical assumptions for, for granted and start with those as foundational, then you can find fruitful data that makes scientific sense uh, without too much issue. Now, again, there are right there are discrepancies, there are challenges, there are, you know, one, one model might produce this, one model might produce that, and you got to work through those things. I mean, it's science, right? There is no, despite what Richard Dawkins or, 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 or Kent Holman or anybody else would have you believe, there just is no silver bullet here, okay? It's a lot more gray. It's a lot more gray. And in my opinion, that is a good and welcome thing. We rest on what the Bible says, period. And then we're doing our best to figure out the physical world beyond that, okay? Um, and the final sort of point on this is that naturalistic origin of life studies, right? So like not, even being able to get the evolutionary development process started with an origin of life uh, that didn't include creation by God, um, 
They are woefully far away from anything in the realm of a possible explanation for why life exists at all. They're just not even close. There's just nothing that comes close. And so we are on solid footing there. It just makes no sense, okay? Why be an atheist? It just, it, anyway, it just doesn't make any sense. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rant too far on that today because I do have a couple other things I wanna try to get through before closing out this episode, okay? The third thing, the third sort of scientific, again, evidence and, and what I think is compelling argument for young age creationism is polonium halos and the unreliability of radioactive dating. Okay, that's a mouthful. Polonium halos and the unreliability of radioactive dating. So let's talk through this. Okay, radiometric data is unreliable because it is based on at least one assumption that cannot be Prove it. And believe it or not, I did the very first episode of this podcast ever about this. Okay. So if you want to dive into this topic, you can just scroll all the way back to the beginning of your podcast. Uh, it's going to have the old branding and everything, but that's fine. Go back there and, uh, and listen to the first episode that I ever did on this podcast. It was about radiometric dating. I did it sitting at my kitchen table while my wife was uh, visiting her parents. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. And it goes a lot more into detail on this briefly. There are three core assumptions that go into the process of radiometric dating. And this is one of the big reasons why people think that um, the, the Earth is old. It's basically, I mean, almost, almost 100% based on the idea of radioactive and radiometric dating. And there are three assumptions. One assumption is that the rate of change has been constant over time. The other assumption is, uh, or another assumption, is that the... Uh, you know, how much being able to know the number of, of daughter atoms that there were at the time versus parent atoms of, of the formation. And then also um, the amount of contamination over time. So to zoom out just a little bit, right, in radiometric dating, radioactive decay, you have this process where the parent atom decays into what we call the daughter atom over time. And you can run the math on that and theoretically get a, using the half-life, you can get a date for um, the formation of that rock. And so in this case, um, you have those assumptions that go into it. Well, what about the rate of that decay? Was it constant over time? What about um, how much daughter was present um, with parent at the time of formation? And then you have the contamination question. Well, over time, was the um, was the parent um, actually contaminated with uh, daughter or other contamination, and then therefore it actually um, skews the data as you're looking at it. Now, scientists, um, many mainstream scientists, seem to think that the isochron method, which is a method of of essentially cross checking this data, uh, would say that those last two assumptions are uh, provable, right, by this isochron method. Jason Lyle on his website, um, the Biblical Worldview, uh, oh, Biblical Science Institute, I would check that out. He has some really good explanations about how this process works, very clear and very accurate, so I would encourage you to check those out if you want uh, uh, some good explanations of how this process uh, works and specifically uh, the isochron method and what it can and cannot do. For simplicity's sake, I would say, well, Let's let's just grant that. Okay, let's say that the isochron method can show that those two assumptions can be known with a reasonable degree of accuracy. 
The problem is, is that that final assumption, okay, cannot be proven that way because you just can't prove through that the rate of decay. And that is precisely the problem that creationists want to plant their flag on because there seems to be evidence of a lot of decay in a short amount of time. Okay, again, not going all into that here on this podcast. The idea is lots of decay in a short amount of time and the flood and catastrophic plate tectonics explains that happening. Okay. Now, again, this is where some of the heat issue comes in that I was talking about, but still we're, so we're, we're working on those issues, right? But understand that this model can explain why we would have a lot of radioactive decay happening in a very short amount of time because it's very, very possible that things were turned upside down. This world was turned upside down during flood year when God was judging and it would make a lot of sense. So the, the, the final sort of consideration on this is that actual blind radiometric dating studies have shown that oftentimes even young materials date old and inconsistently, right? So uh, during the rate project is what it was called, radioactive decay in the age of the earth. Um, there, there were scientists who took samples from different places, creationist scientists, they unmarked and, and, and without their knowing sent these dating samples to, um, to secular scientific labs and had them dated. And the, the kick is that the labs dated these things hundreds of thousands to millions of years old, but they were recently formed rocks. Okay. And so what's really interesting is that as you look at all these special cases, and you can point to, to write lots of special cases where this sort of thing has happened. As you look at these special cases, you find that in all of the er areas where the rocks are known to be young, the radiometric dating that comes back on them is off. But then somehow on rocks that we don't know, we're supposed to trust the radiometric dating that comes back on these labs. Well, sorry, I don't buy it. Okay. Like, give me a break. There is, that is pretty, I think, damning evidence, to be honest with you, that, um, that, that there's something fishy going on here. Okay. Now, again, I am not saying that, that scientists are involved in some mass conspiracy to date rocks a certain way. That is not my view. My view is just that they are using assumptions that guide them to a wrong conclusion on the data. That's it. That's it. Finally, the last, uh, scientific evidence that I think is, is, is not the last one that I think is, is strong, but just, you know, the last one of my favorites is that there seems to be some good evidence for a youthful universe. Okay. A youthful universe and also just solar system. So most teaching around the age of the earth and the age of the universe is again, baked with assumptions, right? Have we talked about that? Um, lots of, like when you hear scientists say something like we can actually look at the past in astronomy. Hugh Ross says that all the time and lots of others. Understand that that is based on the assumption of uniformitarianism. That is based on the whole assumption that rates and processes of nature have been constant throughout all time since the beginning of creation. And the creation event itself being supernatural and the catastrophic destruction wrought by the flood would seem to disprove those notions, as well as what I mentioned a few weeks ago, the biblical idea that God did not promise that the earth would remain in seed time and harvest and sun and moon and all these things until after the flood, okay? God promises consistency in the seasons and patterns and rates and processes of life on this earth 
after the flood, but no such promise is instantiated prior to that period of time. And biblically, I think that's very, very telling. A second reason why the youthful universe is uh, important, I think, is because galaxy formation presents actually a huge problem for naturalism, right? One of their biggest problems is that they cannot get, there's, there's a process called accretion, um, and that doesn't make sense while the amount of gravity was not strong enough in order for rocks to pull together to build the planets and things that we see, right? So I, again, I don't want to get into the whole, it's called the nebular model of the solar system. You can go look that up. But, uh, and, and then, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, bigger galaxies from there, the same thing is required on a conventional model to work. And it just seems very, very implausible. We did talk about that also on this podcast in an episode that we did with uh, Wayne Spencer. You can go back. We talked about impacts uh, during the flood. We talked about planet formation and all these things. He's written some papers about it. Super brilliant guy. So go back and find that uh, episode of the podcast as well if you're interested in digging further into that. And then finally, you have just other astral anomalies like uh, like blue stars, uh, the existence of spiral galaxies, the existence of comets. All of these things, if you look into the data, um, are evidence for young age creationism. And, and, and usually the rebuttals to those just sort of explain the data away. So I would encourage you to dive into those things, look further into it. Just to recap, again, a youthful universe, polonium halos and the unreliability of radioactive dating, biology and barometrological investigation, and then the flood and catastrophic plate tectonics. Those are the chief things, you know, some of my favorite and also what I think are the most compelling scientific arguments and considerations for a young age of creation. And as we sort of bring this series here to a close, let me just remind you, okay, again, and just reiterate, the science is cool. I love it. It's important. It helps us see how God's world and God's word match up. But the science is tentative. You'll recall that all throughout, I mentioned different problems that creationists have and problems that evolutionists have. We all have problems. It's not like we have the silver bullet. It's not like they have the silver bullet. We all have issues scientifically. And that's why we hold to our scientific models tentatively. The question is biblically what's true. Theologically, what is sound? And between that and the fact that I have scientific data that can support this as well, that is why I plant my flag on young age creationism. That's what's with the age of the earth. That's why we care, okay? Consider also our talks about the whole philosophy of science. Most people are not even looking at data and evidence objectively and correctly. They have the total wrong idea about how this works. So you need to consider those things. And I just invite you to consider those things along with me. Thank you again for being a listener to the show. This has been such a fun little series to do. Uh, we're going to have Emily back on in a few weeks to, to bring up some more questions. I'm going to take the next few weeks and, and maybe just talk through some topics that I'm passionate about. And I'm just excited. It's a good time. It's a, it's a fun time. I'm busier than I ever have been, but the Lord has given me grace and the ability and the time to be able to, uh, to keep this podcast up and going. And I just, man, I hope and pray that I'm just able to keep it going forever. I mean, I'm having a blast with it again. And, uh, and um, I'm having a blast hearing from you. It really encourages me to hear from you. Shoot me an email sometime, y'all. I mean, really, I would appreciate that. Uh, it helps me know that I'm making an impact and I'm, I'm, I'm touching people. Um, 
And uh, anyway, I just, I love it and appreciate it. And uh, I can't, uh, I can't wait to talk to you again next week. Okay. God bless. Take care. Have a great week. Bye-bye.